Let's be economical tonight. Um. Okay. <laughs> this is Q. And I'm Jewish Dave. This is Bird Road. This is Bird Road. Great. Let's get to the interview. There you go. We're done. <laughs> well, don't we have to come back and have to talk for a second? What a great interview. That was really nice. I, I like the work that you did there. Bye, everyone. show right because that's the way that you feel about this show you know what i'm gonna shut off i'm shutting off your video i don't want to see your face <laughs> uh, i can't even control it this i can barely, i can barely sit up straight right now i'm, I'm in pain right now yeah, yeah, yeah. i was like all i've been sitting for like 50 minutes like very eagerly waiting to talk to you but that's fine we can just i, I we can i'm just hang down I'm, 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 I'm 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 just being honest whenever somebody is says that, i'm just being honest it's such bullshit like they're so is that really a uh a line from an uh, an outcast song what or am i making that up no, that is an outcast song line. Now that you mention it, I thought you were using it real in the colloquial. No, no, I was doing the outcast line. Gina doesn't think that I that it's real. She thinks that I'm making it up. Whenever, because I do that a lot. It's <laughs> a common staple of this household. Well, what she's really trying to say to you is that you're being a dick. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the veracity of the line. It just which she's right. You're being a dick. This is turning into a real contentious episode. <laughs> I don't need. I mean, I don't need okay. this in my life. Like, <laughs> let, let, let me ask you. An, let me ask you an honest question. Here we okay? go. I'm just being right. honest. Re- rewind, okay? Rewind. It's been five minutes and nine seconds, okay? Five minutes ago, we're, we're starting the show, all right? And I'm I'm ready to go, and I'm not exhausted. I'm not tired. Liar! You uh, are exhausted. What? No, and this is a alternate, alternate alternate universe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What what are we talking about? What do we got? <laughs> uh, no, I was gonna just banter for a few minutes about um, the only the big news is that uh, Bernie has obviously said that he's going to be running for the president of the United States. I don't know why he's mm. gonna do it to himself, but I mean, like that's the only thing that we 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 didn't talk about that because we haven't reconvened since our live episode so yeah yeah and that happened like what the day before right i think it happened like the day after actually i, th- oh, I think okay. it happened the saturday the saturday after he, okay, he said yeah, the announcement yeah, yeah, but yesterday right. which we're recording sunday night yesterday was um saturday uh was the official whatever the 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 opening campaign uh rally Maybe next week will be a uh, just like a, a straight up return to form Bird Boys episode. Oh, I think you want to do a fun. Bird Boys episode? That's what I'm thinking. Oh, an original. I think we should. I think we should. We should each come at it with we a story. Come. We, should, <laughs> we should come and uh, just not say a word to each other. 
the whole time. <laughs> I like the episodes where we just talk at each other. Like I talk at you, and I'm just delivering punchline after punchline, and I'm just like rat a tat, you know, just, just fucking. I'm just knocking them down. I'm just knocking, you're setting them up, and I'm knocking them down. And there's not even a real relationship there. It's, it's not even like uh, uh, you know, like we're not even we're not even conscious of each other as uh, separate sentient entities <laughs> all we are is voices to riff off of I'm a ghost wrapped in a beat <laughs> <laughs> wealth inequality is something that we talk about a lot on the show and it's, it's no surprise to any of our listeners that in this country where inequality is high at a time in, in history where it's approaching record levels Miami's become this vortex of incredibly high inequality if you live here you might recognize that with our, our shrinking middle class, fewer paths for people out of poverty, really weak social safety net, and just a generally unforgiving environment for people who are living in poverty, it's it's a uniquely terrible place to be poor. Uh, it certainly doesn't help that in the midst of all this poverty, poor people are also forced to see and interact with absurd and often vulgar displays of wealth right in front of their faces. And as you might suspect, there's a real stark divide between the wealthy and the poor that breaks down across racial lines. We all know this to some degree, but our guests today have actually made the effort to study and quantify this inequality in their just released report, The Color of Wealth in Miami. You can find it on the Kirwan Institute's website, and that's spelled K-I-R-W-A-N institute dot O-S-U dot E-D-U. So our guests are Dr. Derek Hamilton, Executive Director at the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, and Dr. Alan Aha associate professor in the Department of Puerto Rico and Latino Studies at Brooklyn College. What you're going to hear is actually two separate interviews that we cobbled together through the magic of editing. So don't be alarmed, listeners. Dr. Hamilton, welcome to Bird Road. Thank you. Happy to be on your show. Dr. Aha, welcome to Bird Road. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Igualmente. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what the Karan Institute is and what its focus and, and mission is? Sure. We are an Institute at Ohio State University, and we are keenly interested in uh, basically three domains, economic inclusion, social equity, civic engagement, not just by class, but beyond class to also think about the role of identity as it relates to these outcomes and hierarchical arrangements in those outcomes. So we're all about trying to um, provide people with self-determination so that they can have economic inclusion, social equity, and civic engagement. And this isn't the first uh, quote unquote color of wealth report that, that the Institute has uh, promulgated, is it? That's right. And it's a collaborative report with uh, the Cook Center of for Social Inequality at Duke University, as well as the Insight Center for Community and Economic Development. And it was sponsored with uh, resources largely provided by the Ford Foundation. And this is the fourth in an installment of uh, basically six reports. So amongst those reports, what makes Miami unique? And what are some unique things about Miami? And then what are some maybe commonalities that Miami shares with a lot of the other the other um, cities that you that the Institute has studied? The commonality we can begin with, which is probably straightforward, and that is gross inequality. Gross inequality exists across the United States. Uh, we strategically chose cities um, in large part because of the federal data infrastructure around assets and debt is somewhat lacking. The federal infrastructure doesn't allow us to hone in 
on geographical differences. And we know that, you know, what it means to own a home in Miami is not the same thing of what it might mean to own a home in, say, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So asset markets are local. We know that the products, prices and availability of certain types of instruments, they're specific to communities. And then the other component that was lacking with the federal infrastructure is the ability to disaggregate by ancestral origin. So, for example, what it means to be a Mexican in L.A. might not be the same thing of what it means to be a Cuban in Miami. We know that immigrants have different histories and face different contexts. So as America is becoming more plural or to examine the plurality in America, we chose to disaggregate data by specific ancestral origin and to drill down in local areas. I'd say Miami provides some uniqueness in terms of the plurality of the various populations that not only vary according to ancestry to Latin America, ancestry to Africa and the Caribbean, um, but if we augment our data with census information, we can look at populations that might be phenotypically characterized as white versus black. So within, say, the Cuban group, um, of those individuals that self-identify as racially white, how do they compare to those that self-identify as racially black? These are some of the questions that we could look at in Miami. And then finally, the other component of Miami, as we consider climate change in America, we know that Miami might be ground zero for potential calamity, which is very tragic and unfortunate. And we also know from previous experience of of hurricanes that uh, so-called natural disasters don't have natural implications. Those groups that are more economically vulnerable oftentimes are more at risk of catastrophe than those that have economic security. Those are really good differentiators, and I want to level set on a few things for um, as we get right as we get into this conversation. Uh, first thing I want to talk you, you brought this up, because, um, and I think it's a good time to mention it. The differences in the word black. When we talk about black in Miami, we're talking about uh, a lot of different people, and that's not necessarily the same um, the same groups that we talk about in like maybe a Philadelphia or a Chicago. In Coconut Grove, for instance, it's descendants of black Bahamians who may not think of themselves necessarily as African-American, but more Caribbean Islander. Um, it, tell us about the way that you approach the different demographics for this report, because I thought it was bro- broken down in a, a more nuanced way than I usually see race and color dealt with in the context of Miami. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right, right? Our plurality extends beyond ancestry. It extends beyond just whether one is a Latinx population or a black population or a white population. We know that within these groups of say blacks, uh, they come from various ancestral origin and within Latinx groups, uh, they are phenotypically diverse. So we tried to examine all these intersections in this report. Um, I can say that for the wealth data, we weren't able to get uh, at that specific level of disaggregation beyond indicators like home ownership. Uh, simply because of uh, limitations of finance. We just couldn't afford the survey to that extent. Um, But by combining various sources of data, we really can drill down on socioeconomic positioning um, based on very specific types of of, uh, social stratifications. And, you know, you might ask the question, why is this even relevant? Why do you even care? Um, Well, we care because people want to be identified. And then the other point of why we care is that we can address some of these 
pervasive narratives about social mobility with kind of pseudo experiments. Yeah, let's get to that in one second. But there's one other sort of disambiguation when we talk about this study that I wanted to go over with you, and that is the difference between income and wealth. And I just want you to level set for that. Uh, here in Miami, uh, we we have a strong population of uh, black or Hispanic individuals who become successful in maybe a given, uh, you know, maybe in, in one moment in their gen- one generation in the family will become successful in one specific area of business or maybe one area of entertainment, athletics. And what you see is that there's a lot of short-term, in- short-term income and then you check back on that family or that group later on after that career has subsided or left and the wealth isn't there. And I, I think that that happens a lot and I think people f- get it in their head that this short-term level of income may be the same thing as wealth and it's not in this report. Can you explain that difference? That's an important point you make. In America, we focus so much on income, and income is important. Income allows you to pay your bills, to deal with periodic expenses, um, but wealth is a more stock component. Wealth is, a, it is an indicator that's less fluctuating than income. Wealth allows you to also do transformative things. If you want to finance an expensive education, if you're faced with an expensive legal case, if you're faced with a medical condition, Oftentimes, it is wealth that allows you to have that agency to deal with those type of issues in your life. In fact, if you wanted to separate from your job and start something new, you need wealth. Income is not going to be the vehicle by which you finance that type of endeavor. And if we look at disparities based on income versus wealth, there's no comparison. Disparities in income are large, but they pale in comparison to wealth. Like, for example, if I tell you that um, you know, we're able to disaggregate wealth into various components and the the attribute called liquid assets. Liquid assets pretty much consist of assets that can be readily converted into cash. So they would exclude things like home ownership or car ownership. Basically, it's, tight, it's the cash you have in the bank. And on that dimension, the typical U.S. slave descendant black in Miami had a median wealth of $11 when we look at liquid assets. The typical liquid asset position of somebody who has a long-term descendancy in the United States and they are black is $11. That's incredible. That was, and that's a statistic that we had, I had listed out right here. It was a poll from right near the top of the report. Uh, and I think that the, the gap there is with, um, with, their, with the counterparts that are classified as white, of liquid assets. And then with Latino, $5,000 per household. That's a huge spread. Yeah. And, you know, and just to emphasize the point, $10,750 is um, not dramatically high for whites, but it's still, as you point out, um, black people have a fraction, less than 1% of the liquid wealth of whites in in Miami. Some top line findings of the report. Can we go through generally to set the table of what what the main highlights were, what the main takeaways were? Well, I think it's important first to start with a, the larger context. And the context is this assumed position that we are post-racial, that we live in this, or this putative post-racial frame, right? That we've largely transcended the racial divide, that um, if any inequalities exist, it's it's partly because of the uh, of behaviors or it's 
it's due to groups and uh, groups of color themselves. They brought it upon themselves and so forth. And, and blacks and, and to many racialized Latinos, Latinx members of our community, they're often told, you know, you guys got to get over it. You got to stop playing the victim and so forth. Uh, go study hard, graduate from college, go get a good job. And what we've done is that we've taken the literature, the the empirical evidence relative that that completely and oppositely contradicts those empir- those non-empirical frames, and says it's not for a, a lack of of trying. It's actually quite the opposite. In fact, as our report finds, you've got uh, Latinx. You've got Latinos in Miami with similar levels of education across racial groups, yet you have disproportionate outcomes. Yeah, I mean, indeed, when we disaggregate by individuals that have a college degree in the report, we find that the racial wealth gap is still very pronounced. So education does not, it's certainly not the panacea for social mobility. In fact, I often make the case that perhaps we have the causal relationship wrong rather than education providing the mechanism for us to acquire wealth, perhaps it's more the case that wealth provides the ability for people to purchase an expensive education. So in other words, what we're saying here is that exactly, kind of exactly how you started off the show just now. You placed it on a structural frame. And since wealth is largely, wealth inequality is indeed structural, what we wanted to do is, is we often compare groups. We often sort of compare white, uh, black African-American, Hispanic, Latino as this larger group, Asian and, and, and Native American tribal communities, right? And then you have that some other race part. Uh, and usually what happens is when we conduct these studies, in a, we do them in a, this white, non-white frame. But under that non-white part are all kinds of uh, localized disparities. There's also intra-group, intra-ethnic. So what we did with this is Miami was the perfect opportunity to say, hmm, here's a city where you have a larger range of Latinx ancestry groups and also a larger range of Caribbean ancestry groups. Why not also examine wealth disparities that are existing across groups, traditionally defined, but also within groups? And that's where we found that for, I mean, I'll, I'll hit right at the heart, one of the, the, the heart or one of the pieces of the study is that black groups, whether you are, uh, uh, your history is rooted in the, in, in the U.S. black experience, that that was, whose histories are tied to slavery or to the Afro-Caribbean experience or the Afro-Latinx experience, uh, your levels of wealth are nowhere near compared to, for example, uh, a tip, the typical white Latino in Miami or whites as in non-Latino whites in Miami. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating and interesting because uh, I'm a Miami guy, obviously, and I've lived in New York, uh, from New York originally, but I lived in a few cities okay. with significant Latin, Latino, Latino, Latinx uh, populations, myself and Puerto Rican. But um, Miami's unique because you can have two individuals who both came here in say the year 2008 one from colombia and one from venezuela who lived maybe Uh only 10 or 15 hours away from each other and came here under wildly different circumstances and and what you did in this report 
you and your colleagues really broke down into those experiences, whether it's somebody of means who identifies as white leaving Venezuela because of, you know, fear of acquisition of their property or privatization of their business versus somebody from Colombia who's of color, you know, and Miami's so different. Like what kind of uh, challenges did that present in your research? And then what kind of opportunities, I guess, because it sounds like you guys really nailed um, the nuance of the different experiences in Miami reading through all 60 some odd pages of this report in a way that I hadn't, well, let's consider that, hadn't really seen. Great, a great way to contextualize this. So let's consider that intergroup nuance for a second. Uh, let's take the Cuban community compared to who you mentioned, the Colombian community, uh, and let's say Dominicans. One of the things that we found looking at the ACS data, the American Community Survey, and comparing it to our asset, the asset scorecard part of the, of the report, we found that let, we broke down Cubans by white, black, and other Colombians, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans as well. One of the things that we found relative to what you nicely put together just now uh, is that black and white Cubans aren't that far apart in terms of educational level. We measured it that by percentage of household heads with bachelor's degree or higher. Afro-Colombians actually out-educate white Colombians by a slight margin. And Dominican, Afro-Dominicans or black Dominicans are, are, are only marginally less educated than uh, Dominicans who self-identify as white. Then you click on it, you go to the very next page of the report, and you're going to notice that despite those equal levels of education, the nuance, the intergroup disparity is pretty profound. Black Cubans are more likely to be unemployed than white Cubans. It's quite similar levels of education. It is way more profound for black Colombians, for example, um, and, and, and Puerto Ricans. Then you look at their household income, boom. <laughs> the disparity is, is, is astounding and un, you know, unacceptable when black and white Cubans have similar levels of education, yet the typical white Cuban in Miami, uh, it, it, I'm looking here, it makes $12,000 more a year. Right. This Colombian, white Colombians also make more. So when you're, when you're talking about differential migration, you're also talking about differential treatment by state-level actors and non-state-level actors. What I mean by that is when we talk about Cubans, and this is the most controversial part of the report, oftentimes Miami's growth as this global city has been attributed to the skills and talent and capital brought by uh, you know, the Cuban exiles during the 60s and 70s. Well, that ignores the role of the uh, Small Business Administration. It ignored $1 billion in the, uh, um, invest in the Cuban refugee program. It, it ignored all kinds of state-level efforts that other groups were not allowed, did not have access to. And, and so those disparities, when you look at our numbers, you can see how the disparities uh, are, are evident across groups and within groups, again, as well. So yeah, I'm born and raised in Miami, and I was when you're when you're able to see this in such a vivid demonstration using the census data and comparing it to survey data, um, our own survey data, you see those large ranges. You see those histories that you nicely uh, sort of amplified just a minute ago. Yeah, there's this story that we tell ourselves, and I don't think it's unique to Miami with, you know, the Cuban community coming here and being successful and, uh, you know, the less told portions of that story, what you just mentioned, all the all the assistance right. from the state level. But there's like a larger story that we tell ourselves about 
um, success and coming and just working hard, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And we do backflips and bend ourselves into pretzels in this country to not acknowledge race or to say that race has no part in it. And I, I don't, I can't remember anything that so sort of succinctly states like, hey, yeah, race has a lot to do with it than this report. Um, I mean, is that an oversimplification of what, what your findings were, or was is that pretty much in, in it, tune? It's not oversimplification, especially since, so we can use education as a proxy for that lift yourself up by your bootstrap narrative. If we're finding that across Latinx groups, that local Latinx groups, that you have similar levels of education, yet in the specific measure where we're measuring assets, which is home ownership, which is not the only measure of, uh, of wealth inequality, but it's an important one, right? And you're finding the disparate levels where white Cubans are more likely to own a home than black Cubans, yet their educational levels are similar. It places race smack dab in the middle of the equation. And it counters all of the narratives that I grew up hearing in Miami. <laughs> and also, I, you hear today, and it's not just Miami, like you said, or across the nation, that, that you know, race doesn't matter, that we come from a racial democracy, that we don't see race or color and so forth. No, anti-black racism, especially in the Latinx community, is pervasive and real. And part of what we did in the report is, is, we, is we subverted, I think we nicely countered that larger narrative, that bootstrap-based narrative that has been historically and presently applied to African-Americans and extended onto racialized Latinx groups. Some of the historical groups of color that have been in Miami, the Bahamians who first came here, and then people who um, shared ancestral Amer right. American slave uh, ancestry who came here and were some of the very first people at the turn of the century to, be, to build lasting structures in places like Coconut Grove, um, to build up you know social communities in places like Overtown. Correct. Right? Um, and today you see how that wealth is sort of like has been wiped away over generations because of things like the the construction of I-95 and public works projects that that just decimate what little amount they're able to sort of gather in one generation and then kind of ruin it for the for the following generation. Um, it, and we're still seeing that, right? I mean, it was only 10 or 15 years ago that the very trendy Wynwood neighborhood was a Puerto Rican neighborhood. And now it's a completely different facade over there and 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 the same goes in a lot of parts of um of, of little havana and also now little haiti yeah well actually that's exactly why part of the report delves into what you're getting at are the intersections between gentrification and climate change we know that historic so you have the intersections of climate change gentrification the the use of eminent domain you mentioned i-95 to literally act as an act of wealth confiscation from black american families at the same time that you have the mass migration and investment into the Cuban exilic community. So you literally have one community going one way, you have one going the other, uh, another, despite the fact that they had uh, maneuvered through the oppression of Jim Crow in really uh, creative ways. There's so many key findings in here. There's so many um, kind of eye-openers. Let's, let's go through some that maybe caught your attention or, or, or things that... Um, maybe we're a surprise. What What are some other key takeaways here? If you If you had to sort of, like I said before, give us the logline of this report. Of this report. 
Yeah. I mean, having done this type of analysis across different cities. It's not that surprising anymore. <laughs> unfortunately, it's not surprising. Um, but it, it's it's not doesn't cease in its importance because what becomes relevant is allowing this data to disseminate across communities and advocacy groups so that they can go to their legislators and tell them this is a problem. And I have some some rigor with numbers behind me to back it up. The point is that it was public policy that provided a pathway for certain groups, as well as the white population, to ascend to an asset-based middle class in terms of wealth. And let me repeat that. It was public policy. It wasn't, this, wasn't that a middle class in terms of wealth emerged out of thin air. It was public policy that allowed one group to uh, acquire middle class status in terms of assets. And likewise, it was predatory policy such as redlining, such as the, the use of, of highways and land planning that segregated certain communities and allowed them to be open to predation so that even when they were able to amass certain levels of, of finance and wealth, uh, without the security of a state apparatus, they were vulnerable to theft and outright terror of the resources they were able to amass. And then you asked the question earlier about the differences between income and wealth. Um, Wealth is a stock that is static and more indicative of that history because of the 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 stickiness of it, the the um the strength and not and not changing of wealth in comparison to a flow like income. Yeah, I mean, I pulled a clip from the Miami Herald, and and if I can just read a couple couple graphs of it, it sets it sort of start the lead starts off by setting the tone on a um a corner of the of Coconut Grove that's one of these historically black, actually one of the areas where, according to local legend, the first black person in the United States was a, the first black homeowner lived in the United States um, over 135 years ago. And they sort of set the, the the stage in the lead and it says the quiet is deceptive on this corner. The area is troubled these days, troubled and angry and ready to fight. A consultant hired by the city to ease Coconut Grove's massive traffic congestion said recently, the best way to do so is to build a road through a corner of the residential, mostly black area of the Grove. Many residents believe the proposal would be the first in a series of steps to raise their houses, take their land and turn their historic neighborhood into a glitzy commercial strip. Now, the dateline on this was 1988, and that's exactly what happened in the intervening 30 years. The, this area of the Grove, if you drive through it, is exactly that, a glitzy commercial strip where increasingly the black residents have been marginalized, pushed out. Uh, these rows of shotgun homes that that uh, a lot of Bahamians and, and African-Americans came to and built with their own hands that have weathered the kind of hurricanes that have knocked lots of infrastructure out of the box in Miami and have made it are down to just a handful because they're being knocked down, built into condos. And I, I think that kind of, I mean, we think about a lot of places where people of color were left behind during the, the course of the, the enriching the enriching of America, like during FDR's New Deal, there was a lot of uh, exclusion in that the stuff like GI Bill, things like that, that allow you to, you know, pass things on to your child to to, to the next generation. And it just didn't happen here. It, it, I mean, is that what your findings were, basically? Yeah. And you know, again, you asked the question that started off the interview about what patterns are more generalizable across cities. I think the point that um, historically, it's particularly the GI Bill, particularly uh, some New Deal and post-World War II policies 
there are there's evidence that that impacted the entire United States and led to disparities across race in terms of wealth. Um, in fact, we can all go all the way back to slavery when black people were literally the property of uh, white slave owners. But so, you know, couching this in history is important. But what's really value about, valuable about these reports when we look at specific regions is the ability to really drill down and tell a narrative that's very specific, like the one you just told that was provided by the Miami Herald. And there was one other, you know, it's hard for me to single out all the co-authors on the report. Danielle Cleland, who is at Florida International University, she's doing a whole lot of work in this area of really drilling down on this history that, is, that have led to these inequalities that exist today. But, but the main point is that there's nothing natural about these wealth disparities that we observe, that it was structured. And just like it was structured, we can do things structurally to change it to make for more economic just societies. People with wealth are moving to the parts in which of Miami in which investors are building, which happen to be the parts on higher ground. Right. So let's think about that in a wealth, uh, you know, wealth disparity frame. We documented quite vividly who has wealth and who doesn't. Uh, and I think that it challenges a community to think not necessarily in individualistic terms, which is what wealthy whites and those uh, white Latinx uh, communities are doing when they're able to move to higher ground, but to think in larger collective frames that considers the intersections of climate change, wealth inequality, uh, and, you know, uh, community organizing and, and, and social movements. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I feel you is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> the community part is so important, too, because these are communities that have lasted generations. These are communities where Correct. where people at this income level aren't normally able to be homeowners, but they've inherited these homes and the homes have been in the family. And to go from being a homeowner in Lemon City to being a renter in the exurban, you know, Kendall, or if I'm, I'm using these descriptors for our listeners who are not local, um, you know, Kendall or Westchester or even further out near the turnpike, it that's a that's a blow. And it might just seem like, oh, we're just moving west, but it's really sort of like the undermining of community. Right. You know, and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it sticks to the larger context, I think, of climate change in the United States. And, you know, while we're declaring national emergencies and, and building these, uh, these supposed, um, uh, supposed uh, border walls, which are just, you know, <laughs> racialized monuments or racist monuments to the president, uh, you know, what, maybe what we should be talking about is um, seawalls. <laughs> right. Maybe we need to be talking about uh, climate change resiliency. Maybe we need to be talking about communal forms of wealth. We need to be talking about public banks and a federal job guarantee that's tied to a Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And we need to talk about, as Derek mentioned, baby bonds. And we need to be talking about larger systemic uh, wealth distribution through these collective programs, some that are universal and that are always consistently race conscious. And if we don't hold the two constants together, we lose sight of our ability to engage in more sort of intersectional forms of collective action. You talk a lot about, and I I think this is a a topic that nobody talks about, and I was really glad to see it um, as somebody who uh, you know, l- luckily enough, I'm making the sign of the crucifix on my on my head right now. But like, luck- luck- luckily enough, I was able to escape poverty. But somebody who grew up very poor, 
You talk about access to checking and savings accounts, which is something I feel like nobody in the middle class or upper middle class understands. That concept that is really lost, I think, on the sect of people who maybe are podcast listeners. They don't realize that not everybody can walk into a bank and open up a check, particularly if you or your parents made mistakes in the past or were just forced through, again, the the sort of rigid arms of poverty to write hot checks. That's something that not everybody has access to. Can you explain for everybody what's it mean to have access to banking, like literally, and also like the literal definition of access to banking, and then also what it's like in somebody's day-to-day life to be able to have have access to banking? Well, the, the, democra- the democracy role of being a citizen, of included in something that is important for American life, that's an important, that's important in and of itself. Then there are economic implications. If you don't have a bank account, then you're vulnerable to all sorts of predation. Trying to cash a check at a check cashing institute, not having access to short-term finance, and having to turn to payday predatory lenders, the cost of finance for the most vulnerable is dramatically higher than those that have the security of assets. And then let me say one other point. You know, we might see the differences in bank accounts across race and say, well, what's wrong with black people? Why don't they get bank accounts? It makes sense from a financial standpoint not to have a bank account. So, you know, it's also indicative of our need to make sure we have inclusion in our banking system. Yeah, and I feel like every once in a while you'll hear the mainstream media sort of nip around the edges of of this issue when they talk about uh, predatory lending and, and, um, you know, when certain states or municipalities start considering, uh, you know, limits or or policies that would, would, um, I don't know, make it marginally less gross, a 200% maximum uh, APR versus 100% maximum APR. Yeah. But there's a gap that's created when people can't get a B of A account or a Wells Fargo account. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that just, that's the kind of uh, dynamic that just perpetuates this worse. Right. And, and, you know, and that's what banks do. Banks are in the business to make money. So when they can, they will extract and be able to make money. Um, But it speaks to the need of why we need public policy. And I have colleagues that have invested a great deal of time of talking about postal banking or public banking, where government needs to come in and ensure that people have the adequacy of an economic right to finance. So people like Mercer Baradarin, people like Mark Paul, people like Thomas Herndon, they've all talked about postal banking and our the need to, as a citizen right, be able to store your income, store your store your wealth, store your assets, but also be able to access some short-term loans when you have uh, periodic periods, periodic uh, displacement of income, when there there is something that happens in your life and you don't have access to finance in a short-term basis. We, we need to leave our people less vulnerable to the predation of the private sector. If the private sector wants to engage in this activity, then they should do so with a certain minimum standard of quality of accounts so that people can can be flourishing in their lives. Yeah. And the problem is that that they do instead, rather, they they tend to banking specifically, they tend to do it at the exclusion of anybody who can't access it. So it's either them or or nothing. There is no I mean, we we look at, you know, public banking in its limited use in this country that has been done. It's been pretty successful. There's a, a pretty successful <laughs> public bank in North Dakota that's that's done well and was used as sort of a, um, 
I know was recently used as, as an example for the attempt to start public banking in Los Angeles, which I think did not go that far, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Gordon Lewis titled an article once, the problem with affirmative action is that it works. So we can take <laughs> from that and say the problem with public banking is that it works. Um, there's another glaring, <laughs> there's another glaring lack that I want to, I, that, that, that's mentioned in your, in this uh, piece. And that is a lack of, and this is one that's, I think, a problem for everybody, but far more markedly so for communities of color and far more in places like Miami. And that's the lack of retirement assets. And I feel like this is a tip, a ticking time bomb. This is a harbinger of really bad things when we have a lot of people age out of the workforce in the next, co- in the coming decades, and they don't have the the uh, the accrued wealth to be able to take care of themselves. They're going to have to rely on a social security system that is increasingly in jeopardy from not its own solvency, but from political forces and people who, uh, you know, are more interested in privatizing it. I mean, this, this seems like along with climate change, probably one of the, 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 the larger um, pending threats. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But, you know, I, I guess I would say that the threat isn't even, we don't have the way to retirement. I think we already are in a, we are in a scenario of a, economic security threatening position. To me, I don't think we even have to wait to retirement if we look at some of these liquid accounts and see, for example, that Puerto Ricans have about $200 in liquid assets and we consider that vulnerability. You are absolutely right that um, when, when we age into the twilight, we would have worked our whole lives and we should be at the point where certain type of anxi- anxieties, it's an injustice to bear upon a people. Um, but I, I would argue that this financial crisis extends across the life course and that we should be engaged from cradle to grave dealing with economic security. So how have you or have you run up against, because I know that you and your colleagues were here in Miami just last week discussing this this report. <laughs> and um, again, that sort of uh, great man, great people uh, uh, narrative tends to, to, to rear itself in a lot of Latino communities, a lot of white Latino communities, particularly it's like I came here, I figured it out. You know, nobody else should get a break when my, me and my family came here. Uh, you know, and, and, and pulled ourselves up. So, how are you counteracting that? I mean, how are how are you addressing that in these sort of public comments that you're making as you as this report sort of trickle, trickles into the um, the the public conversation? My look, my hope is that yes, I, I, we've run into that. We've we had comments that isn't isn't decent. Aren't these disparities a byproduct of financial illiteracy or, or, or putting again, shifting the burden of responsibility onto the individual? We've gotten a lot of, we've gotten some of that. And if I look, you know, you look on social media and I try not to dig, not try to look too hard. Yeah, it's a good idea not to do that. (laughs) It's a really good idea not to look too, too deeply at the, at the replies. (laughs) Right, right. Because, you know, the data was presented that the facts, I think they, they speak for themselves, but you know, but part of it is also embedded in sort of. You mentioned white Latinos, though, and part of it is also mentioned in the sort of a, an intra-group denial of intra-group racism. Mm-hmm. This idea that you know, when I was doing ethnography in Miami a few years ago for my book, I wrote a I wrote a book called Miami's Forgotten Cubans: Race Racialization and the Afro-Cuban Experience. And it, you know, uh, when you think about it, there's nothing forgotten about Miami's Cubans, but it actually the title actually came from a young woman that I had interviewed who had come from Cuba, Afro-Cuana, came in the, in the 90s, and as she was working at different restaurants, people started to recognize her accent. 
And but they they were in this bit of a denial. It's like, oh, and they kept saying, "You're Dominican, right? Or you're Colombian, right?" She's like, "No, keep going, <laughs> keep going. You're and so close." And then she "Oh my gosh, you're Cuban." <laughs> and she's like, "Aha! Have you forgotten that you come from a black country, right?" And so she conjured this common response, very clever, to remind people, but also to dig at intra-Cuban and intra-Latinx racism and racial you know from the from the most from racial prejudice down to the structural parts of racism so basically what i'm saying is that i found talking to folks that this you know denial of intergroup um racism which is often sort of viewed in the largely cultural frame well the reason why they're poor is because of their habits or so forth i, I found a, a lot of that and and that's actually how white supremacy uh, is manifested in, in sort of how it plays into white Latinidad. Yeah, and it's such a trickier um, flavor of white supremacy to nail down because in for anybody who was raised in a in a Latino household, even if it's a white Latino household, you grew up listening to Celia Cruz and your family probably, if you, especially if you were Cuban, exalted her and they loved her, you know, but it complicates and kind of like that, that cultural acceptance complicates and muddies the, the waters of, um, of the broader attitudes about like, you know, let's call it what it is. If these black people could get their, 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 their lives together, they wouldn't be living this way. That's the, you know, if they could be more like us, then they wouldn't be living this way. And I guess there's a version in America that's kind of like that. And for like us, the Anglo and black populations in the U S but it's just a. It feels different. Maybe it's just because we're so close to it that it feels different. Right, and you know, it's also historical to present in that it's undergirded in this idea that the, this myth that the U.S. was a real home of racism, and that in parts of Latin America we are more likely to live in racial democracies. And one that our co-authors on the project, Danielle Cleland, who teaches at FIU, she looked at white supremacy and anti-black racism in her recent book and in. in after the revolution in Cuba, and I and many others have looked at it before. Um, so that's just in a Cuban frame, but we could also have the, consider the same kind of analysis when we're talking about Puerto Rico and the DR, uh, you know. And also, I mean, I, I think of what, what you just stated, I think about it relative, you know, then there, it becomes trickier when you consider the intersections with politics uh, and and especially with the disproportionate influence and dominance of white exiles in Washington, D.C., while the voices of more moderate to progressive Afro-Cubanos and mixed-race Latinos and Cubans in Miami and in the region are sort of being muzzled when it comes to whether it's foreign policy or supporting more progressive um, uh, policies that would, you know, that, that would uh, uh, that would alleviate at least mitigate aspects of the uh, of of this you know racial wealth gap and also racial ancestral wealth gap that we documented this intra Latinx one. So you're 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 digging into all of these very uh, uh, complex moving parts. So these are the problems, but let's talk about if there is one, if there are any, the prescriptions. Like what are the right policies that, that, that we should be pursuing to try to close these gaps or, or at least narrow them a little bit? Um, do they take place on a local level? Is it a state thing? Or is this, is this a, a global or national problem that needs to be addressed on a federal level? And, and, and what, by what, in what, by what way can we uh, work on this 
myriad of problems. The ultimate solutions have to come at the federal level, but there's no reason for states and municipalities to wait. My colleague and co-author on the paper, William Darity, we've talked a lot about baby bonds, for instance. So these would be accounts that would be um, seated at birth, basically a birth right to capital. And as you grow and become a young adult, they would be managed by the federal government and provide you with some economic security and that you'd be able to invest in a down payment of a home. You'd be able to purchase a debt-free education. You'd be able to have some capital to start a business. The source of inequality, particularly at the median, is that some individuals have a transfer from a relative or some government program, especially if we look historically about the ways in which middle classes were generated in terms of wealth through public policy. Some individuals get access to this seed capital that allows them to purchase an asset that will passively appreciate over their lifetime. A person who rents versus owns a home, they may or may not be any less or more responsible. The difference is that one person that owns a home had a capital endowment that allowed them to purchase a home and get the automatic savings that comes along with a mortgage. So baby bonds would be a great way to address some of our daunting inequalities that would, would that would provide for economic inclusion and economic justice. I mean, we've again, we've talked about um, uh, public banking. Uh, we can talk about other ways in which people are vulnerable. We know that health, a, a bout of health, uh, a negative bout of health causes is one of the main components of when someone would go bankrupt. So if we think about ensuring that everybody has access to adequate medical care, regardless of their economic situation, that could avoid some of the insecurity that goes along with a catastrophe of a medical condition when you don't have resources. I mean, I can go on, but to sum it up, we need to think about what are essential goods and services that we should not leave to the whim of the market to ensure that people can engage the market with an authentic choice so as they can be self-determined and flourish in their lives. We need to see and consider the intersections of race, racism, wealth inequality, climate change, gen gender. I mean, we need to look at all this through a intersectional frame because mm -hmm. if we don't, I think that we, we, uh, we, we lose our ability to, to create transformative public policy to, to informing social movements. So when I think of solutions, uh, I, I defer, Derek nicely put that in, in, in context in terms of what we could do at a national level to a, to, to a, uh, to a, a, a specific, more local level. One thing that we wrote a few years ago, myself, Derek, um, and Sandy Darity, we wrote a piece in Yes Magazine arguing for municipal level job guarantees. At which would be sort of be take us beyond the fight to fight for 15, which I know Miami has been uh, uh, central or one of the cities in the United States that has you know been fighting for living wage ordinances and fight for 15, and it, or folks on the ground have been really pushing for it. One way we could actually Miami could dig further and and push with, would would to be implement a municipal job guarantee that is climate change tied. Whereas your typical black Latinx worker or uh, that 
and our numbers that you find there are disproportionately unemployed. And we didn't even get into underemployment, but, but the, the evidence is there. If for any reason that they are not able to find a job, a, a living wage job in the private sector, the labor market at large, they can go directly to a municipal job guarantee uh, bank that's created by the city as a form of direct employment that mitigates those uh, disproportionate levels of unemployment in Black and Latinx communities, right? But also specifically geared toward uh, toward the kinds of initiatives that local grassroots groups, environmental groups, have been saying that Miami needs. So this is that would be a really fascinating way for the grassroots and and the state to join, you know, join hands and say, all right, here's a chance for a job guarantee, living wage job guarantee. We've got a serious issue. Miami's under threat. This, here's a list of where we need workers to do from the shovel ready to the most technical of structural work. Um, and, and sort of kind of like a civilian conservation corps that we had in the, you know, during the, the New Deal, but more climate change specific. How, how, what can we do with the monorail in ways that, the, given, you know, back in the 80s, it neglected communities of color? What can we do to uh, <laughs> dilute uh, 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 Miami's tra- tremendous traffic problem, which also but, has uh, environmental effects? Yeah. Like, I- I'm going off kilter here, but I think you know what I'm getting at is that there's so many ways to do it. And I think a municipal job guarantee is one of those ways in which you can tie climate change resiliency, and also uh, hit at the income problem. The wealth problem, as Derek pointed out, would be a universal program like, like baby bonds and many other, many other attending policies, right? You need universal health care. Let's talk about universal housing. Let's talk about um, larger, and I think there's a paradigm shift happening in the country. This Overton window has opened and shifted in ways where I can't, I couldn't, I can't believe some of the Democratic candidates are actually talking about some things that two years ago we thought were crazy. Piecing it together, this was the one year anniversary of the show. So um, we got a whole bunch of episodes. We're Today, hopefully, the same time this goes up, will be the uh, standoff at Sparrow Creek, which is with you. Um, And then just the other day, we did Happy Death Day to You with Josh Bell. And also this coming Friday, Josh Bell will be back on again for Overlord. And we got a uh, couple contests going on in our Piecing It Together, a movie discussion group as part of the one-year anniversary. So check that out. And check out the new uh, movie search feature on the website, piecingpod.com. Here's my question about the Michael Jackson documentary. Okay, let's do it. Where did all those kids' Australian accents go? Like, they had them, and now they're (laughs) grown-ups and they don't have them anymore? What the fuck happened there? Why are they all American now? There's a lot of holes in the story, that's all I'm saying. Hey, my name's Nate. I'm from uh, Brisbane, Australia. And like, <laughs> you're from where? Australia. <laughs> yeah, mate. I, uh, so I met Michael when I was six and he seemed like a good bloke. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> what is this? Is it, wait, is this, how much, have you watched some of yeah, it? Yeah, I watched like, like 25 minutes of it now. Yeah.
<laughs> they're like, and they're like going through the parents' backgrounds, and the parents are like, you remember the meme from a few years ago where they where they would be like, uh, I'm a, a flea circus trainer. It was uh, what's that show where Love It or List It, right? Is where people are deciding if they're gonna buy their house or not, and mm-hmm. they set a budget at the beginning, and it's always like, I'm a flea circus trainer, uh, and my husband is a, a like a nanny benefits coordinator. Our budget is $2.8 million. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> I'm a public school teacher. My husband owns an entire chain of <laughs> like dog washing vans. <laughs> Our budget is $786,000 in Austin, Texas. The the parents of all these kids are like the most... My mother was a hairstylist. And there's a picture of the kid like... A six-year-old getting his hair dyed by his mother, which is, I don't know, it doesn't seem right at all. And there's, there's a lot of issues. A lot of things happening. On, on every side of the story. On every side of the story. <laughs> and so I'm only 25 minutes into it. It's well it's well made. I mean, whatever. I'm not going to, probably not going to I'm sure it. it is. Like I said before, yeah. in, 20, in 2019, if you want me watching a documentary, it better be about me. Because I'm so not interested in documentaries right now. Well, speaking of which, I actually went this morning to see Apollo 11 in IMAX, and it was actually pretty fucking great. Was I in it? it? Was way better, way better than the first man. Was movie. I in it? Yeah, right, yeah. Well, I'll you watch were it. Uh, you were blasting off to outer space. Oh, I was blasting, huh? No. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey. Um, how did you like Miami, Dave? I haven't really gotten a download from you. Like, was it just like something you had to do, and you're just glad it's over or like did you actually enjoy yourself and have a good time no i had a great time of course i had a great time what are you talking about i don't know get to get to hang out with you and uh the show was really fun and we uh went to some nice restaurants and i got to see your your whole little bird road thing it was great what's there not to like about going to miami my daughter harangued you yes yes she did you and and we went we went to the vet with wiggy that's How's right. Wiggy doing? Wiggy's fine. He's got a big blood blister on his um, back oh. hind leg that I keep popping and draining, and it just like fills up almost immediately. Oh, it's disgusting! It's disgusting. I just ate like <laughs> thirteen minutes ago. The first time I popped it, it was just white, clear liquid. It was just like uh-huh. water. Then the second time, it was like milky, and uh-huh. now it's like like caramelish yellow brown <laughs> and it just keeps getting worse and worse i see that you jumped out of the outline just now <laughs> is, is that like like closing the outline is getting you further away from this conversation like maybe it's not happening i think i think my phone did that automatically <laughs> how was uh the for real I, I i said it was lit but how was the bernie thing uh on saturday what bernie thing what are you talking about his, uh, his, his big uh, oh well according speech. to Twitter uh, according to, to to like Hillary people on Twitter only white people attended it there's only, well, yeah of course there's, there's only white men it was all white men even though it was like just it, that's perfect and that's actually like a perfect um microcosm because actually like actual reporting from the event supported that it was probably more women than men there and that of course it was in Brooklyn so it was you know it was probably about like half white people and half people from the, you know, various United colors of Benetton. And, um, 
So it was like a diverse and and multi and like you know, uh, evenly gendered crowd, <laughs> but there's like like cropped in photos where maybe like a uh, like a group of six or seven white people are standing next to each other and they're like, look at this, all the Bernie Bros. <laughs> <laughs> so, just get ready for about two yeah. years of that or like a year and a half of that and then if somehow he wins it's four to eight years of that for the uh for the episode artwork we should take a picture of a trump rally and just photoshop bernie into it so it's a picture <laughs> yeah, typical bernie so bernie <laughs> it reminds me a lot of like when um when the huffington post like two or three years ago sent out a uh, a tweet that they thought was going to like earn them cool diversity points of like of their editorial board and it was all women and they were like this is what diversity looks like but it was all white women <laughs> just like the, the, I think there was one Asian woman on the on the board and, but she just you know in terms of tonality of the picture like monochrom monochromatic uh, just the way that your eye sees it she did she just blended in and it, again this was like 20 women and they were all 19 of them maybe were white and one of them was was asian and people were, it was just hilarious because democrats rocking it <laughs> true diversity comes from people that look different, I guess. Yeah. That's <laughs> the, the, the true definition of diversity. Hey, you know what we should uh, talk about for a quick second? Let's do it. We... Yeah, what do you want to promote? No, I wasn't going to promote anything, but uh, we, we talked quite a bit about uh, True Detective while I was out there in Miami. What would you think of the uh, ending? I think you should have been here to help me like, you know, process it. Yeah. Um, I thought it was great. I really, I thought they, they did incredible incredible things with that show um i think it was i think it was better than the first season personally mm. I, I think marshall ali was better than the uh I, I think they were both better than the other their their counterparts i mean yeah like, well i mean it was it was a really well-rounded character and i mean just the amount of of just incredibly like naturalistic acting that he's doing in all three of those periods like I mean, it's like a fully lived-in human being from you know yeah. thirty years of, of. It's insane. Like yeah, I, it's all, wild. All props to him. He deserves every TV award yeah. that. It would be it would be madness if he doesn't win the Emmy yeah. <laughs> next year. Just total madness. Yeah. People wanted to take this show. I think like fans wanted to take it in different directions, and we've all had our brains poisoned from like um, too much uh, Game of Thrones and um Westworld and shows that have like hidden deep lore and shows that have like that are mystery box shows you know right and so we're all like trying to come up with sh- and and when you're just presented with a pretty straightforward um linear story yeah it, it's it, it kind of throws you for a loop because you're expecting it to they turn out to be something big and Scary. It's funny because you know, I don't know if you remember this or not. The the Franklin um, child prostitution ring allegations. Do you remember this from the eighties? We were kids. Obviously, we, we wouldn't be in a position to remember this. But there's been you know like uh, the the there's been like reporting and documentaries about this shit since then. The Franklin mm-hmm. Community Federal Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska. 
back then in 1988, what happened was there was this. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know how familiar you are with the savings and loan scandals from the from the mid to late 80s, but um, the savings and loan scandals uh, took down a lot of banks that were um, not. That they weren't complying with. I don't want to get turn this into a whole thing about AML compliance and 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 shit like that. A bunch of banks because of the the. Same, I'm a huge fan of those things. Yeah. By the way. So wanna, as like, much as you want to talk about it, just you hear me like skating this like razor's edge right now of like not getting too nerdy with with AML compliance and um, banking and regulatory shit and like and trying to like keep it where people can just just know that there was a huge scandal in the 80s if you're too young to know about this the savings and loan scandals a lot of banks went under um it was kind of similar to the to the recession where it uh illuminated a lot of cracks and and fissures and um weaknesses in in a big system of our in a big sector of 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 our financial system the same way that it did with housing in um 2008 2009 so but one of the weird things that happened during this time was the Franklin Child Prostitution Ring allegations, which was stemming from Franklin Community Federal Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, there were these sort of shallow sh- shadow allegations that came like from all different places, but nothing that was really vetted or, or codified or really checked out. It was this weird, well, almost like one of those like mass hallucination things where Everybody started saying that that this that this bank, Franklin Community Federal Credit Union, was a front in Omaha, Nebraska, was a front for some of the most powerful people. And remember, this is pre-internet, so turned into this thing where it was like a sprawling network of of like East Coast Atlantic power coming from D.C., from New York. Uh, the Bushes were involved. Like again, I, I want to make it clear that none of this turned out to be true. This was a, a one of these sort of like mass hallucination events where people kind of took this shit and ran with it. It turned out to be when they got to the end of it that uh, it, it hadn't happened, right? And the woman, I think the character's name was Eliza, right? Is the the documenter the the documentarian that's mm-hmm. interviewing old uh, Wayne in in 2015. She brings it up. She says there were similar situations like this in Nebraska with Franklin, uh, with Franklin uh, Community Federal Credit Union, and in Louisiana, and that's where everybody kind of loses their shit in that scene. I lost my shit in that scene because that's the scene where she so she shows Marty and Rust from season right, one, right? right? And it's like, yeah. oh shit! But what caught my attention was that she brought up this debunked thing that was a conspiracy theory and this big huge world that actually turned out to not not be a thing and i think that that was not a mistake that they had that character do that oh so you that's exactly what this show thinking like season one is like a conspiracy like no 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 my point was my point is that this guy pizzolato is uh like leading fans down this conspiracy uh path right right and just like this franklin uh 
this this Franklin Savings and Loan situation, there's nothing actually there. At the end of the day, it's something as simple as bank fraud. It's That's what I as, mean. Yeah. That's exactly oh, okay, what I yeah. mean. It's, it's like a simpler thing, but he's leading you in the direction of, of like where conspiracy nuts would go and right. like seeing more to it and making it seem that way, that there's going to be all this more to it when really it's just a simple crime. Right, and the savings and, savings and loan was just, if you, if you get to the heart of the savings and loan scan, uh, scandal, which... Uh, is is kind of the same as like the the predicate offenses that led to the um to again to the 2009 global recession it was just incompetence and greed and that's what mm. the crime was it wasn't some big nefarious plot it wasn't a yellow king there wasn't a sprawling network of you know satanists and cult members and it was just a you know it, these things that sort of uh, uh lead to these these panics these moral panics that grip the country um, it was just a, a fucking crazy woman that, that accidentally killed a little boy and had yeah. to cover it up and yeah. was, was in a powerful family. And that was it. And that was it. Spoiler alert, I guess I should say. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, dude. What did you think? No, no, I, I liked it a lot, too. I, I mean, I I think it was. It was interesting. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense because, you know, it's interesting. They went for just like, you know, a simple emotional closure along with uh, just like a simple end of of the story. There wasn't any kind of big, big bang ending or anything like that. But it it, it was done so well and it was so what the story needed. It, the story didn't need to go in any kind of weird, crazy uh, direction. We we yeah. we we put it on uh, on there we, we you know we kept imagining all these crazy di- directions but there's really no reason for the story to go in those directions and i think that's interesting what you're saying about uh, uh about uh nick pizzolato or how you say his name yeah, Pizzolato. but uh think, yeah. yeah but uh with that being kind of a driving force of the show um uh to to misdirect and all that um making you think there's gonna be these big bigger themes and whatnot um but yeah, I was also thinking that if we had uh, a whole bunch of money to just throw away, it would be great to film something in three timeline, uh, you know, time frames of me and you. <laughs> that would but be what would like, the ages the be? Be? I feel the like best way. It's I feel a, like it's literally a... the only age I can play right now is forty. I'm, like I don't think. Oh, I'm, that, that's forty. That's what you think. I, that's it, dude. <laughs> what? <am> I... <laughs> I was gonna say at least fifty, but. <laughs> You think I look 50? That's horrible. We both look old. <laughs> we both look so old. I, well, I don't know about you, but I've lived a life. I've yeah. Tried, I've lived like 60 years in my in my time. So like, We could do it. We could do it. We, we could uh, we, we, we could make ourselves blowing. look young and old. They say it's a cold <laughs> wind out there. Wait, where is this world, by the way, where either of you, e- either of us have proven ourselves to be any kind of talented actors? <laughs> like why would anybody ever film us like yeah this is that's why i say we're throwing it away <laughs> this, is, this is gonna be terrible but uh but i'd love i'd love it 